This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the summer season of the Climate Action Show. This episode was first broadcast in 2022. Some of the climate actions recommended might be out of date, but there is still plenty to do, and we'd love to hear about any climate action you are taking. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. This show was first broadcast in 2022. Some calls to action or details about action may now be out of date, but please, listeners, do continue to take climate action. All of us are needed. Hello, everybody. The Climate Action Radio Show is trying to bring you inspiration from climate activists tonight from India, New Zealand, and the flooded lands of New South Wales. But the twin apocalypses of climate disruption and nuclear accident are hovering over us very much at the moment in a dizzying way. So I'm going to read you the words of Blair Polisi, who joins it all together very well. She's an old friend of the show. Um, she co-founded 350.org Australia. And before that, she was with Greenpeace. And she asks, what do floods in Australia and the situation in the Ukraine have in common? Here's Blair Polisi. Watching the news from Ukraine day after day is challenging for all of us and it's easy to be discouraged and to feel hopeless. Don't. The unprovoked wars, unspeakable suffering is energising the world to act, not just to support the brave Ukraine resistance, but to reconsider other hopelessly complex issues like climate change. Russia's invasion forces a dramatic reassessment of a key climate issue, energy. Last week, the EU announced a plan to reduce EU demand for Russian gas by two-thirds before the end of the year. And the EU is putting into hyperdrive its Repower EU plan, which is diversifying gas supplies and adding larger volumes of biomethane and renewable hydrogen production and cutting back on fossil fuel use in homes, buildings, industries and power systems. They're boosting energy efficiency and increasing renewables and electrification at great speed. And they're addressing infrastructure bottlenecks. There are silver linings to even the bleakest world events. For lifelong climate activists like myself, the invasion of Ukraine has re-energised why I got into environmental activism, the belief that individuals are not powerless to act and can have a real impact. Particularly last week, while much of the world focused on Ukraine, here in Australia we've been following the other difficult news to watch. Unprecedented floods along the east coast of Australia, where I live and work. More than 20 have died in New South Wales and Queensland, with 640 areas evacuated, impacting more than 52,000 people. The inland town of Lismore is coping with floodwaters metres above normal. And this is the third year in a row that devastating climate-induced heat fires and floods have ravaged Australia. But what was truly shocking to many Australians was the inability of the federal government and national military to respond effectively to thousands of citizens trapped in life-threatening waters. That left it up to us. Across the region, individuals, emergency services, volunteers and community members stepped up to fill the void. People like my friend, Asmuk Chand, a young emergency volunteer and climate campaigner, and Sally Flannery, who, seeing the need, used Facebook and a spreadsheet to organise the boat rescue of hundreds of stranded residents in distress. 
Some of them were elderly and disabled, trapped on their roofs, escaping rising waters. Hasmuk worked with a volunteer agency around the clock to organise evacuations, food and clean-up efforts in torrential rain and often dangerous conditions. The lesson we can learn from this, with the federal government and national military utterly failing to respond to the thousands trapped in life-threatening waters, individuals and volunteers like Sally and Hasmuk picked up the slack. That was Blair Polisi with her article called What do floods in Australia and the situation in Ukraine have in common? In tonight's show, Amelia Goonridge, who was a youth delegate at COP26, is talking to Maori negotiator Tak Daniels in New Zealand. It's urgent for us to find ways to understand and promote Indigenous knowledge, and Tak has been at high-level negotiations to protect biological diversity, which means engaging with a lot of Indigenous people around the world. He says Indigenous people must retain control of their knowledge and non-Indigenous people can learn a lot from them about power sharing and keeping the focus on a shared future, which I think would be something the negotiators in Ukraine would also be focusing on, the shared future. We also have a poem from George Woods in Newcastle about the historic floods in Lismore. She is one of the most ardent climate campaigners and has often been on this show. And I'm glad she's balancing the hard work of trying to stop new coal and gas, the ever-ending struggle, with time out to write poetry. But let's start with the Transitions Film Festival. We're going to meet director Camilla Beckett and her subject, Bandana Sheba. Food is a weapon. They said when you sell real weapons and arms, you control armies. When you control food, you control society. When you control seed, you control life on earth. Camilla Beckett is with us now to talk about her new film, The Seeds of Vandana Shiva. I love this film. And if you've read Vandana Shiva's books like Soil Not Oil or heard about her battle against Monsanto, you will love seeing how it all happened. As this radio show is all about climate action, I think Vandana Shiva is a terrific role model for us. 40% of the solution to climate change lies in organic ecological farming in the hands of small farmers. Can't wait for governments and corporations to make the shift. People must. We see her whole life in this film. You know, she started as a physicist and then she learned from these very humble women, the Chipko women who hugged trees to protect them. And we hear about the admiration people feel for her from Ghana to India to high-level conferences around the world. So, Camilla, welcome. And would you like to tell us about some of the experiences you had filming her life? Yes, and thank you very much for having me, Vivian. Um, it's, it's lovely to be on your show. So we met Vandana about, oh, golly, Almost 20 years ago, I would say, um, we were working on films about threatened water bodies around the world um, that were organized, actually, by the patriarch of the Orthodox Church in Istanbul. It's a kind of a strange way we got into, um, we, we got to meet her. Um, and she was invited by the patriarch to present papers and to be part of symposia about these threatened water bodies around the world where we were asked to make films. And so we met her there. We were enormously impressed by her. Um, we got to know her over um, many symposia. And then finally, we asked her if we could make a film about her life because we were so interested in the issues that we were raising and her journey as an activist into becoming a world figure. And we were lucky enough that she uh, agreed. So 
that's how we got started with her. And then we traveled to India and to Africa and to various spots around the world where she was pre-COVID. She was very busy um, traveling, going to, you know, to present at sort of high level conferences, um, like, for example, at the United Nations. And then she would also be going to work with sort of beleaguered farmers, you know, in out of the way places um, in the developing world, um, just to talk to them about their rights and about seed saving, about the threat of industrial agriculture and all of that kind of thing. And so we followed her over a few years and talked to her about her life story. And uh, the film is the end result of all of that. Well, there's a scene in a village where she hangs back after a talk with the men, I suppose, or all of the people, and she just has a cup of tea with some very shy women, and you, the camera goes around, look at these women who are very uncertain if they're going to say anything, and then they give her their seeds, and there's a little handful of seeds passed across to her. What's the significance of this as climate change is disrupting farming everywhere? Yes, yeah, so she understood pretty early that it was the women who grew food and who worked most closely with the land, you know, to feed their families. So in sort of traditional uh, Indian society, anyway, the women would grow food for the families and then the men would grow food for the market. Right. And so as industrial agriculture became more and more sort of encroached onto traditional farming methods, um, the men were just growing out seeds and buying seeds that they could sell. Um, and in the meantime, in the industrial model was basically dispensing of traditional food seeds that were, in fact, very environment and climate adapted because as they grow out, they adapt season by season to a changing climate. And so, so she's uh, in this particular scene, she decided to talk to the women because the men had said to her, no, we don't have any of these particularly um, unique seeds to the to to the area and to um, into that into that Indian area, and so she sort of knew intuitively that they were around somewhere, and she wanted to rescue them and start growing them out again, so that she could grow back biodiversity because it was being lost at such a incredible rate. So, she in fact did speak, hang back and speak to the woman, and the woman said, "Yes, actually, we do have these seeds. We do have these traditional seeds. They're very." New nutritious we grow for nutrition not for yield um, and so she started to go around to the villages and collected all these seeds that were in danger of being lost and she started growing them out on her own farm Navdanya yeah. um, and then she would share them further with with other farmers and so these seeds were basically rescued um, and 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 brought back you know into brought back to life yeah, and we see in the film all these places you take your camera into these seed libraries with jars and jars and jars of all varieties of rice, and she's so proud of it. And I think that's become global, hasn't it, around the world? You see her travelling to Ghana and other places. Don't lose your precious diversity, and that seems to be very important for climate change because I just, just comes to mind we interviewed someone from Bangladesh and they said, oh, we're on the front foot with this. We're so aware of climate that we're actually developing salt-resistant brands of rice, you know, and, and they are still planting where the floods come and floods go. They won't be able to do that forever, but the variety of seeds was what they emphasised too. Yes, and in fact, Vandana was very much aware of that, 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 that the that the that the intrinsic nature of the seed is able to adapt to a changing climate if you grow it out. And so very and, and speaking of rice, she grows out a lot of rice seeds um, on her farm at Navdanya. And in fact, there's a sort of one historic event where um, there were these terrible floods in Orissa, and I can't remember what year they were. I think it was about 2008. And she was able to send seeds, first of all, the big industrial agriculture uh, companies were like, okay, we're going to send wheat to Arisa. Well, they don't grow wheat there. And they were, they were, you know, industrial produced wheat seeds. And so they probably weren't going to do very well anyway, but it looked good, you know, in the media to see these bags and bags of wheat. So, um, so Vandana said, no, we need to send rice, which is what they are, what they grow there. And also we need to, 
send rice that can manage in in salty conditions because of these flooding. The seawater had made the soil quite salty. And so she was able to send and donate rice to the farmers down there and they were able to start over with the rice that could actually cope with the conditions. And that's the kind of thing that she does. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's why the film is so important because it gives people confidence that there is a kind of a, another way than the monoculture way that we've been subjected to recently. I'm born in the Himalayan forest and uh, non-separation from nature was quite clearly a lesson. We had a classroom out in those forests. I chose as a young child to do physics even though the schools I went to didn't offer it because for me, physics was about understanding how the world works. So at the end of it, I did a PhD in foundations of quantum theory, and it's quantum theory that taught me how to make connections. Vandana Shiva also comes across as quite an important scientist. You know, she, um, she was a physicist at first, and we see her talking at those high-level panels, and she calls Monsanto products the seeds of suicide. How did she cut through against such powerful and rich companies? You can see from climate action, we're always worried about the fossil fuel companies. How do you cut through? What, what did you learn about her strategies there? You know, there's one thing that I will say that is very unique to, to Vandana. Not unique, but it's, but it's, you know, I can't pretend to be that. And the thing is with her is that she's absolutely fearless. She's fearless, fearless. She has a brilliant mind. She has a very healthy ego. Um, and she knows, you know, people at the top are not much different from the rest of us, besides that they may have privilege and opportunity and power. So um, she really doesn't think that any one person is better than the other. And she has got also a great capacity to sort of mobilize people on the ground because she has such a clear vision that she's able to inspire people, get them to understand the issues at a, at a very sort of fundamental level. And so she supports a lot of movements uh, around the world that, that, that would pressure and resist um, these sort of industrial titans. And so um, she's a real inspiration to movements on the ground. And then if, she's, if she goes to these high-level meetings, you know, she'll, there's nothing that, you know, she's not afraid to say what she thinks and to, and, you know, I would never want to debate her. She has, you know, I've seen her with... Um, prime ministers, you know, debating them and leaving them speechless. I felt that too. I wouldn't even like to take her on in any way, but she she seems a very endearing, your portrait of her is a very endearing one. She's also lovely with very humble people. If I hadn't felt the imperative to come back to India, both to answer the puzzle of the disconnect between big science and big poverty, as well as just the search to give back. I didn't know how I'd get back, but I had to give back. So she deals with the big companies, but she absolutely focuses on small farming, small family farming, not subsistence agriculture really, but it's, it's small scale, local far localized farming. And this idea that small scale farming can feed the world comes across very clearly in the film, but are you convinced that industrial-scale agriculture really is a dying paradigm? Um, yes, I do. And I think, that, um, I think that the titans of industrial agriculture are starting to realize that it's a dying paradigm too because the soil is so depleted, because, you know, you're not able to put that amount of chemicals into the soil. And, you know, you can't grow food in dead soil. You cannot grow. And the chemicals that they've been inputting into the soil have been killing it slowly. So not only that, but we have been affecting our water systems, not to mention the climate. And so we've got a lot of climate chaos. So I do believe that people understand certainly who are involved, you know, not, not maybe regular consumers who haven't had an opportunity to think about these things. But I do believe that the big industrial corporations are starting to realize that the basic resources for growing food are 
dying and becoming depleted. Um, so the, and you can see that by the way that they are starting to co-opt the language of regeneration. You know, they're starting to do all sorts of things to sort of get in on the act of, of organic agriculture. Is it small scale yet? No, I don't think so. And I think small scale is really the key because of the uh, issue of biodiversity. You have to have locally adapted food resources to grow for us really to be able to feed the world. So the, the idea that you have to have large scale monoculture, industrial agriculture to feed the world is being proven quite clearly to be a model that does not work and does not feed the world. In fact, we have more starvation than we've ever had before. This yeah. is not working at all. Uh, so I think they understand that. It's very hard to turn the liner around because there's so much money being made and so much investment being made. But I also would caution people to be aware that just because the Monsantos and the Cargills and all of these big industrial corporations are using the language, you know, of organic and regenerative and ecological. And, you know, you'll go onto the website and you'll see a lovely family farmer petting his cow. That is not <laughs> how it is in real life at all. It's actually appalling mm -hmm. uh, what these monocultures um, are doing still. And so yeah. I think they're trying to figure it out, but they've got a very long way to go and we need to definitely keep the pressure on. Yep. Yeah. Well, at COP26, very big pledges were made to cut methane and to start deforestation. And both of those things affect agriculture. You know, we deforest the Amazon for, for cattle and um, the methane from livestock is significant. Do you think that the example of Vandana Shiva achieving, the, you know, from her example, do you think that achieving these cuts in methane and, and, and stopping for deforestation, do you think that they will come from local people wanting to protect their land and water, like the Chipko women, or from big governmental, you know, pledges? I really think that it, it needs to come from both sides. It really needs to come from both sides. And I do think that people on the ground in these areas are really, really experiencing the effects of climate change. And they are doing their very, very best to be heard. The trouble is that power and money is so concentrated at the top and there's so much to be gained. And we've also got a sort of a mindset that cannot, that is, that is stuck in one lane that, you know, there's a sort of a sense that, well, technology will save us, you know, that, that we're just more tech and higher tech and lab-grown beef and, and, and all of this oh, and yeah. more chemicals, all of those kinds of things are going to solve these problems. No, we have to go back to thinking about how does nature work? And instead of trying to dominate nature that we've always done and comes from the sort of Cartesian mm -hmm mindset from you know the industrial revolution i mean there's a sort of a history to this mindset that we've become so stuck in in terms of of, of solving global problems but actually it's that mindset that's got us into trouble in the first place so we need a real whack on the side of the you know of the head go back to the drawing board look at how nature really works and work with nature rather than against it which is what we've been doing vandana shiva says about the big corporations that they want to drive the small farmer there's a scene where she says they want to drive that small farmer off the land because he is the last free person on the earth which is the sort of thing she says these sort of very memorable phrases there's a lot in your film about freedom, all sorts of freedom, freedom to have more seeds, freedom to have biodiversity, freedom for the women to, you know, do what they do best. Um, and I want to know what message does your film have for climate activists, you know, about freeing your mind and yourself in order to be effective act activists? Well, I, you know, let me start by saying I'm extremely, extremely grateful to the climate activists, because if it wasn't for the climate activists, you know, who knows? And I just know that there are so many climate activists who have dedicated their lives and their souls to moving the needle towards a more sustainable world. And, you know, I bow down to them. I would say, though, that historically the climate movement has been very focused on sort of keeping fossil fuels into the ground in the ground. Mm. Um, and I would really like to see more focus on food and farming as a great 
and significant driver of climate change, up to 40% of climate change is really to be blamed on our food systems. Um, from industrial farming practices, which actually causes carbon to be released from the soil to uh, then we've got the transport, the chemicals, you know, there's, I mean, if you sort of follow the, 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 the course of how industrial food is produced, the impact on the climate are absolutely profound. And I think it would be great if we really, really were much clearer about messaging around that so that people would make better food choices because not only is industrial farming the cause and a significant cause of climate change, but it is also food and farming is, can, can be a solution to, to climate change in that through organic, ecological, small scale, uh, regenerative farming methods, we can actually sequester carbon. So we can pull the carb, the excess carbon in the atmosphere that we have released through one way and another back into the soil where it actually belongs. So we can restore the soil to grow healthier food by using more ecological farming methods. And it's really possible to do. But I feel like we're, we're getting started, but that message really needs to get out um, in a much more significant and sort of um, what's the word, louder way. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're talking to Camilla uh, Beckett and uh, her film, The Seeds of Vandana Shiva, is still on at the Transitions Film Festival. And listeners, you can access these films online. You pay a small ticket price and the films are available, I think, for three more weeks. So please look up that film and many others in the film festival which uh, revolve around this sort of message. Camilla, I'd like to know a bit more about you, just to finish. Um, I believe you grew up in South Africa during apartheid and you've launched your film, Beckett Film Company, Beckett Films, is dedicated to environmental and justice sort of subjects. And tell us about what living through these, these you know, our life, our contemporary life, what are this, these turbulent times and meeting, I think, wonderful people, wonderful leaders, well, how it's affected you? You know, um, I think it's made me very humble. You know, I, I, I have met some amazing people in my life and it's been very humbling to see um, the degree of thoughtfulness and dedication and compassion. Uh, many of these leaders that I've, I've, I've met briefly, um, often, um, sort of bring to the table in terms of, you know, to dedicate your life to change on behalf of humanity is really, it's a very, very special person who does that. Um, and I know, you know, the world is brimming with people like that. Mm. I happen to have been lucky to have met some of them, um, including including Vandana. And so I feel like my life has been very privileged in that sense. Um, I also have learned... Um, that it's not only the people who high profile who create change. I think that there are so many people who are on the ground doing amazing work that, you know, don't make it into the media, um, but who really are doing significant things. And so yeah. I feel like that I would really like to, you know, thank all of those activists. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my small part is when I can just to bring their issues um, to light, you know, as you are doing right through your radio program. Mm -hmm. I do it through, uh, through making little movies about yeah. it. I like that you mentioned that not just the high profile. In the film, you have her sister and her brother, and they've gone along this whole journey with her, and they're very, um, they don't, they're just very supportive, but you can see they're not, they don't have that charisma that she projects. And I'm wondering, is it, it sounds like a, a very lonely life, really, to be on stage like she can be, um, you know, and, and a thinker as she is. I think it, she needs a lot of quiet time. And you, you, you spent, must have spent a lot of time making that film because you go to so many aspects of her life. And were you just like a fly on the wall with your camera, just screen, you know, filming a lot of things and then editing that into the film? Yes, we, we, uh, we, we'd spent a long time editing and we would, um, you know, we, we sort of made it on grants and donations and all of this kind of stuff. So we would sort of raise the money and then we would go out and record her again. I mean, she does, she has joked, you know, quite often. It's like, oh, golly, they're the Beckett's again, you know, trailing me around. <laughs> um, but that was good because 
Uh, well, she, I mean, she has filmed quite a lot anyway, but um, um, she sort of got used to us in the background. Yeah. And, the, you know, the good news is, is that because we'd known her for a long time, she actually trusted us and yeah. um, she was happy with the final result. She, she knew that we weren't going to throw her under the bus or the no. movement under the bus because that wasn't really the film we wanted to make. We didn't want to do a he said, she said, you know, she yeah. said, he said kind no. of thing. We thought that this was an opportunity to get... Um, this message, give it its day in court in a way because, um, you know, the titans of industrial agriculture have, you know, huge budgets and a huge mm -hmm. platform and have access to politicians and all of those kind of things. So we didn't need, we thought that we needed to sort of have the counter view um, available to people because uh, it's really important that we, you know, the cha we change the way we're doing things. Okay. Well, I hope your film has great success. It's going on from the Transitions Film Festival to many other venues. And I especially like to say to teachers listening, this is a wonderful film to show to school kids because so many school kids are in the strike for climate movement and they are, a lot of them, very anguished about the future we're facing. And this film is not like that. It's not about crumbling icebergs and polar bears starving. It's about, do, you know, rolling your sleeves up and doing a lot together and it's that even the Chipko women, very humble people, still can protect their land and it's it, it just has that feeling of um, energy that you can generate and I, I think especially school kids would love this film and it, many people are going to enjoy this film. So it's called The Seeds of Vandana Shiva and the filmmaker is Camilla Beckett. Thank you, Camilla, for talking. Thank to you. Me. Thank you so much, Vivian. And yes, it has been shown in schools. You know, some schools have, have, have gotten screenings um, and we've had really good feedback and university students as well. So thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It just so happens that throughout history in every culture, it's women who kept the seed. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Woods is with us now from Newcastle in New South Wales, where for Melbourne listeners, we are having massive floods. Even in Sydney, people have been evacuated. So welcome, George. I'd like you to read us your poem. And it's just such a wonderful poem in the context of the floods, but also in the context of your life of campaigning, you know, with climate knowledge uppermost. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Thanks so much for having me, Vivian. Um, yes, uh, I wrote this poem over the last few years, to be honest. Um, the, it was in response to a, a number of different major flooding events here in Australia, but also overseas um, in Pakistan and um, Bangladesh. And I, I suppose it prompted me to, to think about, firstly, the, the people who suffer the impacts of climate change um, and how devastating it is, but also turning that on its head and, and wanting us to sort of run over the top of all the boundaries the, the way floods do. Um, I've been an activist against the causes of climate change for 20 years here in Newcastle and um, it has been very demoralising, you know, in recent years because now the things that we were talking about 15 years ago as likely impacts um, that people were going to be suffering are now very much being visited upon uh, communities in New South Wales and Queensland this week particularly, but we've seen, you know, two, three years ago with the bushfires, a whole lot of rural communities in New South Wales also um, suffering really very devastating um, fire impacts. And it is, I was talking to a friend of mine who lives up near on the outskirts of Lismore um, yesterday about how very difficult it's going to be for all of us to continue fighting while we're also now grappling with the terrible upheaval um, and sorrow and anger that the impacts of climate change are 
um, inflicting on people. And the, I know have a lot of friends on the North Coast, um, and a lot of I know a lot of people who, in the last 24, 48 hours, have lost everything they own, uh, and their mm. their renters, and they have no money, and now they're being told, you know, that their houses are uh, unlivable and they can't return to them. And the trauma of it and the devastation of it um, is really quite difficult to, I suppose, respond to. I, I feel as if we're going to become tougher <laughs> about all of this as it goes on and we're really reeling at the moment from the shock of the last five years and, and the um, suffering that has been inflicted on people, of course not here just in Australia, but all around the world um, as extreme weather is accelerating. And I think because we know that impacts of extreme weather are going to happen between now and the end of this decade, regardless of action on climate change because of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere, we now have this sort of multi-fold task of not only continuing to fight the fossil fuel industry and our governments to bring down greenhouse emissions, but also help each other and build connections between each other within communities and across communities to deal with these impacts and respond personally and, and build our uh, abilities to, to respond with strength when these mm. terrible um, events occur. So that's the sort of mood <laughs> this week. Yeah. Uh, and I, I posted my poem, which is in uh, my book, which has only just been published in the last month because it, I was thinking my heart was with all of my friends um, in the Northern Rivers who are um, still today uh, now copying additional flooding. So, yeah, yeah I, I can read it for you now. Okay. Just before you read it, I wanted, you said you've been demoralised. I'm so sorry because you are one of the most ardent campaigners. I've seen you all these years at every, all sorts of conferences and places and lock-ons and campaigns. You're just so ardent and don't let it get you down, please. Yeah, write poetry. <laughs> pace, pace yourself. But one of my most inter uh, interesting interviews with, with someone in Bangladesh called Salimul Haq, and he said, look, he, he was so disillusioned at COP26. You could see him in all the videos, just looking like a little man in a raincoat, absolutely downcast. But then just in January, he appeared again. He said, look, I, I think it's beyond infrastructure, beyond money. It's social capital. And we are building that. We are on the front foot in Bangladesh. And the social capital they're building is have evacuation centres. I'm sure you know people in those low-lying areas are in very simple houses. But... They just evacuate. They take their cattle and they go to the evacuation centres and everybody's accounted for. If you're an elderly person or a solitary person, there are children assigned to you to take you to that evacuation centre. He says, we don't have the deaths that we used to have. And just yesterday I heard on the radio in Sydney here people asking for people with motorboats. Anyone who's got a motorboat, can you please go up to Lismore and, and report? Why don't we already have a register of people with motorboats? Why aren't we prepared like Bangladesh so that that resilience, you know, and uh, social capital is already giving us courage that it's there when we need it. And the SES do a fantastic job, but there's a lot more people who can be called in. Well, absolutely. And, you know, friends of mine did spend many, many hours um, earlier this week, for, you know, ferrying people, rescuing them um, in Lismore. And, uh, you know, I think that community is one that has an extraordinary amount of interconnection and, and love for each other uh, yeah. and, you know, a, um, a great mutual aid support network. Uh, and that is what all of us are going to need um, in the decade to come and, and into the future. Uh, and, when these events occur, it, it becomes very stark. You know, those who are isolated and lonely, you know, mm. suffer the most. Mm. And if we can, while we continue to fight the, the fossil fuel industry um, and fight for mitigation of, of greenhouse emissions, you know, we also need to, to build strong community connections so that mm. when these inevitable disasters are inflicted upon us, we have, you know, at the very least, the morale and the love uh, <laughs> that we need, but hopefully also the rescue craft and someone to cook a hot dinner, as yeah. many are doing, you know, for um, for people in Lismore this week. I know. All right, let's hear your poem. It's called The Floods. Flooding, vomiting over walls, hurling down fences. After years of sandbagging, after years of siege, we dream we're rushing over banks, drowning forms, cues and categories. We're carrying the day at last, buoyant and inexorable. Flooding, smothering roads and walls, 
hill slopes yield to current and collapse. Soils and trees join the tepid gravy, urging, unrelenting past the door, oozing loose our heavy luxury into a mass of rubbish. Snakes and bandits turn up with the water. Wild teens dare each other to leap in. Nurses follow in the ebb, searching for torn seeds in the brown walls. All of us are strangers now, with no water we can drink. One day, one day the wet will cease receding. We will pour out and reclaim. In my dream, this is the day. In my dream, we burst like clouds to flood the mines and catch the deluge. We come here, we overtop the sky. I dream we are droplets pouring down. Cascading as one, we thunder on the roofs of bankers and mining bosses. Friends, we're drenched, we cannot hold. We will spill, we will spill. Wow, wonderful. <laughs> Pelting on the roofs, that's fantastic. Well, what's the name of your book so listeners might like to find your work? The name of my book is called The Tide Will Turn It. Uh, it's published by Puncher and Watman, so you should be able to find it on the Puncher and Watman um, website to buy. Okay. Well, I hope you'll send us a link and I'll put it on the show notes so people can follow it up if they like what you say. I definitely will, Vivian. Thank you. Thanks very much. We've been talking to George Woods in Newcastle. George, what can people do if they are moved by your words? What can they do to help? Well, the folks in the Northern Rivers really, really need our financial assistance at the moment. Um, there's often an urge to, to give people stuff, to give them clothes and food, and oh, well, food certainly, but uh, at the moment, really, they just need it. They need some money. Um, there's a, a Give It link, which distributes um, material goods that people need. Um, there's a Facebook group called Resilient Lismore, which has a pinned post at the top um, that people where people can find um, the local council appeal as well as that Give It link um, and the Red Cross appeal. So I really do um, hope that people can um, some give some money at this point. There's a lot of people in Lismore who don't have very much money, who have lost the very little that they did have this week. Um, and so all of us who live somewhere else, if we can, I think we should give. Mm. That's, that's it. There's a kind of poignant feeling, all of us who live somewhere else, while, we're, while we are living somewhere else from the floods or the fires, we should be as strong as possible in support and in opposition to the causes of this. I, th I often think we're very complacent when things are going well and we don't realise then it, it is always us next. It is. And, and sharing wealth and, you know, sharing money around is, is really what we're going to need to do in the years to come. I should also mention um, the uh, Aboriginal newspaper, the Koori Mail, has its office in Lismore and they lost everything as well. But oh, they also have an appeal underway um, specifically to help the Aboriginal community um, oh. of Lismore and the surrounding towns. So check out the Koori Mail's oh. um, tweet stream for links for how to donate to them as well. I definitely will. We get the Koori Mail. It's a fantastic newspaper, very newsy yeah. and very up to date. Oh, well, we'll support that. So send us those links, please, and I'll put them on the website, on the um, podcast. I no. will. I will. Thanks, George. Thank you. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Hi, Climate Action Show listeners. My name is Amelia Gunaraj, and today I will be your guide as guest host while we talk about First Nations representation in international climate responses. There was huge rhetorical emphasis on the importance of Indigenous peoples at COP26, which makes sense due to both how much work First Nations peoples have done in protecting the planet for thousands of years and how many of these communities are also on the front lines of climate change. 
However, at COP26, there were lots of issues regarding accessibility and the actual impact of Indigenous contributions on the final texts which emerged from Glasgow. Lots of Indigenous delegates reported being unable to access events or negotiations due to COVID capacity restrictions, and some events were also undermined by inadequate support. For example, one event I attended on the Amazon rainforest had no interpreter, meaning someone from the audience had to volunteer halfway through the event to translate from Spanish from the Indigenous representatives there. The biggest issue, of course, is that many of the requests of Indigenous peoples have not yet been addressed. Amazon Watch, a group dedicated to protecting the Amazon and building solidarity with Indigenous peoples, noted that the negotiations failed to secure grievance mechanisms for damage already suffered by Indigenous peoples or ensure that Indigenous rights and territories will be protected going forward. So to talk about these issues, I'm now going to introduce you to Tak Daniel, who currently works as a consultant and policy analyst. In the past, however, Tak worked as a negotiator for the New Zealand government and has extensive experience liaising with Indigenous groups and on Indigenous issues. Tak, considering your experience, we'd love to know your thoughts, as well as your personal perspective being Maori, on how far we've come and where we need to go. Tak, welcome. Kia ora, Amelia, and thank you very, very much for your introduction and also for prefacing uh, what this conversation is about. Firstly, I'll just do my usual thing and where I acknowledge where I'm from. So, Kanuita mihi kia kingi tuheitia, makau ariki, arawa tamariki mokupuna, me etifare kahui ariki. Amelia, I'm from the Tainui tribe in Waikato in New Zealand, and uh, we have a long association with uh, Indigenous rights and ad- Indigenous perspectives, and also presenting at forums such as the uh, United Nations and other international um, events. Being a government person, it was perceived that I would be conflicted. However, because I had a role at that time in my negotiation period of managing a New Zealand uh, international piece of work, which is around Indigenous property rights and a claim called the Y262 claim. And so I had the a unique perspective, being able to think as an iwi Māori person as well as a government person. Uh, And so I was lucky in that respect. So that's my background per se. I was involved a lot in the Convention on Biological Diversity, which has links to the climate change program. And I was lucky to negotiate with lots of people, particularly Indigenous people around the world. So coming back to your initial question, your preface is absolutely right. I supported a young Māori uh, woman who's also Klamath uh, from the Oregon region, and her dad is from the far north in New Zealand. And I wrote a mm. small paper for her about how to navigate through uh, a UN uh, conference, in particular the climate conference. And at that conference, it was stipulated that the voices of particularly Indigenous people, women, and uh, the youth would be given credence and would be given uh, the ability to, to speak their mind. However, as per your intro, yes, I heard that they were also marginalised and kept away from uh, making the inter- interventions that they wished to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, there've been many talks and reports from people who attended COP26 about what their experiences were like, and part of the problem was just not really even being let in the room. You know, and I guess. Would you be able to speak a little bit just from your own perspective on why equitable representation and participation is so important, you know, in these big climate conferences and, for example, in the upcoming COP27 at the end of this year in Egypt? Yes. The, if I go back a little step, just slightly, the reason mm. for equitable representation is because of the variety of voices and experiences which Indigenous people have particularly because of their inextricable relationship to nature and the processes and rituals that those Indigenous people have in order to create and sustain their relationship with nature. So that's a basic you know, uh, premise by which Indigenous people work, and I found that throughout the world, despite being Māori and having our own processes back home, when I spoke to other Indigenous people, that was the key. They have the rituals and they have sustainability uh, focus, and they also have responsibility for themselves as well as for those elements of nature that they are close to. So coming to representation, particularly with uh, view to Egypt this year, 
One of the issues that the climate change from the UN side find difficult is how to fund or how to support those those voices going forward. Mm. There are groups that do have um, a broader reach that are Indigenous groups, and there are lots of Indigenous groups that are made up of representatives who go forth and represent the multitude of voices that go to them and say, can you represent us, please, because you have scale. And these groups do do a great job and negotiated with a lot of them. They're still there, they're still doing the work, and they won't step back. That's one way through which people can also find representation. The other reason that people find it hard is because their ritualistic processes and how they manage it in terms of their law on their land is Mm. so distant and far away from the legal processes of the countries in which they reside. So the legal framework, as well as the Indigenous law, often do not meet, but there are ways in which they can be met without Indigenous people having to subsume themselves to a legal, um, a legal framework. So that's the other way around to try and mm. find means by which both sets of knowledge can come together to benefit Indigenous people as well as the other peoples within that country. Would you be able to maybe describe uh what needs to be done in order so that these these processes can happen so that we can bridge, you know, bring in Indigenous groups that might have these kind of different practices so that, you know, these conferences are more accommodating so that we can make use of this wealth of knowledge? Like, do we need specialised people or is it a matter of, you know, funding these organisations better or what what are the links that we need to be making going forward? A lot of effort has been put into just proliferation and just getting a voice on a seat inside a meeting somewhere. When in fact, if you switch it around and take a longer term strategic approach, what is it that younger cohorts are going to decide to coalesce around and work backwards from there? That's the approach mm. I would give. The indigenous knowledge must stay with the people to whom it belongs. Yeah. I, I saw a lot of... Um youth Indigenous representation at COP26. Um, and I know I've listened to this webinar recently um, that was conducted by SEED, uh, the SEED Indigenous Youth Climate Network here in Australia. Um, and uh, one of the speakers, Tiana Jakicevic, she's also Maori, she talked about how, you know, they were really getting in there, um, they were in the negotiation rooms, and I'm sure that was like a, a great learning experience. I'm sure there's still a lot to learn being young and at the very beginning of their journey in this sense. Um, what advice would you give to these young um, Indigenous people who are already doing so much but have, you know, a long future ahead of them um, in at this negotiation table? There's a couple of things I would do. I wrote a paper for my friend's daughter, who's Māori and she's up in the Klamath area in Oregon. And I really gave a background to the dynamics and what occurs in a meeting like that. And you have the universal makers of policy and, and then universal takers. And the takers normally situate around price. So I would say to people who are want to negotiate and have a longer negotiating career, is to understand the dynamics and who those players are and why those players are there. What is it that they have and what is it that they need? And while this may seem like you're coming at it from a view of subservience, in fact, when you look at power-sharing relationships, there is a lot that Indigenous people have and should hold on to that no one else should know about. But that Mm. very presence is sufficient for people to say, hey, what is it that they have? So knowing who you are, knowing what you represent and why is really important. And I think most Indigenous people have that. The next step after that is to understand the dynamics of the negotiation frame. Also, too, to have people um, who are Indigenous but who are in negotiating teams representing their governments. They will have an idea about what's in the middle and what can be negotiated and what cannot be negotiated. So you get an idea about how much leeway you have in impressing upon a government or an NGO or a commercial company or a research company, you have an idea about how much you can impress upon them for them to give you space to have a voice and to have some scale in the deciding of the text. The text is where it happens because it comes legally binding. And that's the hard bit. If you can find within your own, within your own rituals 
a means by which you can not translate, but you can have that represented without giving away the sacredness of your rituals and the sacredness of your purpose. You can find a way to have yeah. uh, to represent those things that are vital to you and your identity represented in a legalistic framework. Then you're halfway to getting uh, your goals met. Yeah, that's great advice and beautifully put, Tak. Yeah, so I guess like that comes with experience and also dedicated learning, um, but also definitely requires a lot of cooperation and um, from from non-Indigenous people. Um, I think that's something that a lot of, uh, well, I hope more non-Indigenous people are thinking of going forward into these um, into these meetings. Is like how we can be um, helpful rather than a hindrance um, and, you know, not take up space that doesn't necessarily, that doesn't belong to us, you know? So I guess my last question is what can non-Indigenous peoples do at, at these conferences or in general in order to support um, the work of First Nations or Indigenous peoples? I think the legalistic systems have set up for non-Indigenous people not to succeed. It's That's a little bit crude in my, mm. my reference, but... Uh, the scrum is screwed towards, because of the way the law is and what makes it legally binding, are words on the page that have an effect and governments adopt those words and say, yes, we will align to that particular legal framework or those legal words that you're telling us. By having, just going back to the previous point, by having the means by which you can have representation, your, your intentions can be represented in legal text, that then gives you one purpose and one means by which to get your stuff in. The other way, the other way, however, is also for non-Indigenous people to go back to their roots and understand why Indigenous people are working this way. Uh, mm. What are the barriers to Indigenous people having a voice and having a say and having some equity in this conversation? The other thing non-Indigenous people can do is to compare and contrast themselves without scale and just mm. look at how will this be for my children? Mm -hmm. And something that we put across when I was negotiating in Cali many, many years ago was I said, because it, the conversation had got mined, and so I put up a proposal that, with the caveat that our children and your children, those of you with scale and those of us without scale, our children will come together. And if we make a decision that's based solely on the scale and the thoughts of a particular type particular group or particular type of thinking, our children, when they come together, will denigrate us for not making a decision that was inclusive. Because mm. they will come together, they may have relationships, and their children may succeed both our knowledge sets, both our traditions. So we actually have to think strategically about the effect in the future, and that future is now. So I would say non-Indigenous people get alongside uh, your Indigenous folks, those people who you are close to, get along and speak, talk and share a shared future. If you have a shared future, then, then you are able to find what is common and what is not common. You work on what is common, and for those things that are not common, you, re, you repackage them as means for things to not overcome, but as challenges from which you can learn. Once you have those challenges meted out and pulled apart, as things to learn from, therein you start to find other strengths, other opportunities, other means to go forward. It's really about time. That's yeah, absolutely. All of them, really. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. You know, I think, and very true, you know, taking the time to listen and reflect. Um, I mean, sometimes it's uh, difficult when things are happening so quickly, but things won't be done correctly if we don't take the time to really reflect yeah on the long-term impacts of what we're doing and our relationships with the people that we're working with or should be supporting um anyway tack um thank you so much for your thoughts um yeah it's been fantastic talking to you um and yeah hope you have a lovely evening now thank you very much Amelia, and all the very best in production of this and what comes out of it Thanks for listening to the Climate Action Show at Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. Thank you to Camilla Beckett, George Wood and Tack Daniels for being our guests and many thanks to Amelia Goonridge for being a guest interviewer. To help the people displaced by the present floods, 
please check out Climate Action Show 3CR, where you can find all the details. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. It's cold. It's cold. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show.